May I voice my humble protest against our Cubs being taken away from us? Having attended 58 games this season, cash customer box seat at that, I may know a little bit about the case. All Cub fans I've talked to say they certainly will not follow them north, that when they leave the west side, the team dies as far as we are concerned. It is a shame, too, as we have had them all our lives and supported them through thick and thin, while the only way Weedman could get a fair crowd out was by giving them 10-cent ball. Some sports on the north side. Pardon me for taking up your valuable time, but I just want it known that we will not follow the Cubs north. Rather, we would become Sox fans. Signed, A Cub Fanus. December 20th, 1915. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and today on Chicago's Civil War, we'll take a step back from the games of the City Series and discuss the regionalism that stoked the flames of the Cubs-Sox rivalry. Up until now, the Cubs have been a west side operation. Now that they've moved north permanently, Chicago historians Peter Alter and Richard Lindbergh will help me understand how the city's great north side-south side rivalry developed on the field and on the streets. After the Cub Fanis' letter ran in the Chicago Tribune, a neutral Fanis responded. Why turn down Mr. Wiegman and his beautiful ballpark in preference to that decrepit Cub Park? Who landed a pennant for the Windy City this year, eh? Now bury the hatchet and be neutral. Remember, you're a big girl now. After just two years in operation as a self-described major league, the Federal League collapsed following the 1915 season, and Charles Wiegman was one of two owners from the failed circuit to stay in the big league game purchasing the Chicago Cubs. Since late 1913, when James Gilmore announced his intention to go major, the Federal League had been a thorn in the side of organized baseball, stealing players and fans from established franchises. When the league folded, it should have been a happy day for all of organized ball. But in at least one area, the west side of Chicago, it felt an awful lot like the Federals had won. For years, fans had been clamoring for a new ballpark for the Cubs. By 1915, it had been five years since the baseball palace of the world had opened on the south side. By now, the old wooden ballparks were clearly a remnant of the past. Most teams had already moved over to steel and concrete. The size advantage was clear. The Cubs had lost out on home games in the City Series in deference to the 32,000-seat behemoth on 35th and Shields. The greater problem, though, was the rampant fires breaking out at the West Side Park. Since the dawn of baseball, fires had been a problem, the perils of using wood as your primary building material. Parts of Charles Murphy's ballpark were charred and falling apart. Each year, the Cubs boss promised a new stadium, and each year, a different excuse was offered for why none had been built. In 1916, when Wiegman bought the team, he had a choice of two ballparks, and there really was no choice. If he had left the team on the west side, he would have had to build a new stadium sooner or later. The old west side grounds were broken down. His north side park was no great shakes at this point in time. It was built in haste and lacked many of the amenities of Comiskey's park, but it was serviceable, and Wiegman had a 99-year lease at Clark and Addison. Two things that weren't true on Polk and Lincoln, the site of the old west side grounds. The Cubs' move to the Lakeview neighborhood left them in a rather flavorless area of the still-developing north side of the city. But as Richard Lindbergh tells us, their move from the west side may have come at about the right time. Even before the Cubs moved to Wiegman Park in 1916, basically the Northsiders, as that population grew, 
identified more with the Cubs, even though the Cubs played on the west side. The Cubs played in an area where the present University of Illinois is now, but it was, it was kind of a dangerous area. It was not far from um, the bloody Maxwell Street District, which was called the Terror District, because you had so much gang crime and you had so many tribal ethnic rivalries between immigrant groups where they were forming their own gangs, and it was a very dangerous area. Lindbergh is a lifelong White Sox fan, so you have to take what he says about the Cubs with a grain of salt. No, not really. He's written 20 books on the history of Chicago, so he knows of which he speaks. Charlie Wiegman is a visionary who uh, doesn't get a whole lot of credit. The Cubs don't give him much, much credit at all. And this is a man who they should have a statue for, but they don't. Chicago in the early years of the 20th century was still a rapidly developing metropolis. Just 15 years before the Cubs move, the White Sox came to town and never even considered playing up north. In fact, you may remember then-Cubs owner James Hart's insistence that the Sox set up camp south of 35th Street to stay out of his way. He made no such declaration about how far north they would or wouldn't be allowed to play, even though the remote north side was much further away from Hart's west side club. That's because the north side neighborhood that has become so synonymous with the Cubs in the ensuing 100 years that the area around the ballpark is actually known today as Wrigleyville didn't exist in 1900. It was mostly prairie land and light industry, a far cry from the rough-and-tumble manufacturing districts of the south and west sides. The north and south sides of Chicago were separated by the Chicago River. There were bridges up and down the river, but Chicago was the great port city of the Midwest, meaning that ships passed through regularly, forcing bridges to open to let the ships pass. This made it a real hassle crossing the river and commuting between the north and south sides. The primary downtown area was situated just south of the river. It didn't extend north until the Michigan Avenue Bridge, known today as the DuSable Bridge, opened in 1920. Since most of the city's commerce existed south of the river, the north side was slower to develop. The south side, on the other hand, was a bustling center of industry. This benefited Charles Comiskey and the White Sox very much. When Comiskey moved his White Sox to Chicago in 1900, the Cubs had already been established for almost 30 years. And during most of that time, they reveled in having the entire city's population and their potential fan base. They searched for the most accessible location for a stadium, playing at various times on the near north side, along the lakefront downtown, and on the south side, before settling on the near west side. For several years in the 1890s, they moved back and forth between the south side grounds and those on the west before they settled down permanently. When the White Sox moved to town, Cubs owner James Hart knew that he was bound to lose a percentage of his audience. Chicago's public transit system was up and running, and a Southside fan certainly could have hopped on a streetcar to get to the Westside Park. But transportation wasn't as fast as it is in the 21st century. There were no highways, barely any automobiles, and having a ballpark closer to where you lived was a great luxury. The new Southside ball team immediately hooked its surrounding neighborhood. They had a better market in 1910 in the South Side than the Cubs had on the West Side. The West Side immigrant communities were populated by mostly by people of foreign birth who had no connection to baseball. But however, in Southside Bridgeport, you had first and second generation Irish immigrants and the children of the immigrants who gravitated towards baseball. Language barriers were easily overcome because everybody spoke English. And I, I believe that there's a very strong ethnic factor in the success of the White Sox during those years. That's not to say that the West Side Park didn't serve its purpose in the community. The West Side of Chicago was a great melting pot of European immigrants. 
I'll let Peter Alter, the chief historian at the Chicago History Museum, tell you a little more. The near west side in the late 19th and early 20th century was, uh, you know, not not very far from Jane Addams' whole house, which is a social settlement house. Again, appealing to working with immigrant communities, primarily from Southern and Eastern Europe. You know, you have Italians, Greeks, uh, Czechs, some Slovaks, Irish immigrants, Irish Americans, German immigrants, German Americans. The proximity to Jane Addams' whole house was symbolic of the role that baseball played in the Americanization of immigrants. Whole House was the most influential settlement house in the country. It welcomed thousands of people each week and tried to make life a little more manageable for immigrants who were adjusting to Chicago. They offered English classes, cheap meals, and artistic and social programs. In its own small way, baseball did some of the same things. It might sound trite to say that going to the ballpark was that truly American experience where all immigrants could feel welcome, but it was mostly true. There was a significant generational struggle during this time period, not just in Chicago, but in many American cities. First-generation immigrants were still flocking to the area and settling in ethnic neighborhoods. They lived, worked, ate, and shopped with their own countrymen. Newspapers were printed in seemingly every language, and many immigrants had no real need to learn English. Their kids and grandkids felt differently. Second- and third-generation immigrants often found a disconnect between their home life, which embraced their ethnic heritage, and the outside world, where they could pursue a more American experience. Often that quest for an American experience led them to a baseball field. Chicago's West Side Park, home of the Cubs for over 20 years, played a large role in the assimilation of European immigrants. But from the time the White Sox moved to town, it was clear that the Cubs were a second-class attraction. The South Side team dominated yearly attendance battles between the two clubs. Only during their dynastic run in the late 1900s did the Cubs outdraw the Sox, and even then, just barely. By the middle of the 1910s, the White Sox were routinely attracting more than twice the crowds the Cubs were. When you look at the media coverage of the newspapers of that era, it was just a joie de vie, enthusiasm for the White Sox that you didn't see with the Cubs. Wiegman's reason for moving the franchise wasn't based totally on geography. He already had the park on the north side. But he certainly saw the trends developing and realized there was a better chance to grow the fan base on the north side of the city. If he had to take criticism from the occasional fanis, so be it. South side around Comiskey, north side around Wrigley, where comparing those immediate neighborhoods, fairly characterless on the north side and kind of dominated by the meatpacking on the south side. For the first decade and a half that the White Sox were in town, Chicago's baseball rivalry bloomed. There was no shortage of reasons to root for one team or the other. There were the National League supporters against the followers of the upstart American. Then there were the contingents of fans of the Comiskey family versus the Loyalists to the team that had been there longer. Of course, many fans just wanted to see the teams play each other and established an allegiance while they were at the park. In 1916, though it wasn't the intention of the move, the Cubs gave fans another reason to become split. In 2020, the thought that the Cubs would ever have played anywhere but the north side is almost comical. The Cubs-Sox debate is often used as shorthand for the differences between the north and south sides of the city. This didn't happen right away, but over time, residents developed a fondness for their neighborhood clubs. Here's Rich Lindbergh again. People who were born and grew up in the neighborhoods identified with either or, not both. And it was a matter of personal pride because the South Siders and North Siders began to hate each other, not just for baseball, 
but the North Side was perceived as, as elitism of college-educated people, of nightclubs, and, and you know, when you thought of the South Side, you thought of the stockyards and the steel mills and people who went to shot in the beer joints on the corner every night after work, and it had an essential blue-collar identity, and the South Siders essentially resented that. They thought the North Siders were uppity, and so their anger could be manifest through baseball when these two teams clashed. The west and south sides of the city shared many more similarities than the north and south did, so when the Cubs moved, the differences between the two fan bases became more pronounced. We heard Peter Alter mention before how much more interesting the area around Comiskey was. That's in large part because it had a history. You know, we looked through the heavy industry of the meatpacking on the south side, and, you know, that has been made famous through uh, the jungle, through Carl Sandburg poems. Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handlers, stormy, husky, brawling, city of the big shoulders. Carl Sandburg's poetry helped immortalize Chicago as a city of doers, which is why the hectic South Side resonated so strongly with the public. The thriving steel industry was located south of the city, but more memorable was the meatpacking hub, just down the street from Comiskey Park. In December of 1865, the Union Stockyards opened. Chicago's meatpacking industry had grown dramatically over the previous few years, and this was an attempt to consolidate operations. The result was a complex unlike anything anywhere else in the country, or probably the world. By 1900, the Chicago Stockyards ate up 475 acres of real estate. They produced over 80% of the meat that was consumed in the United States and were a must-see tourist attraction for both domestic and international visitors. But the working conditions were brutal. Workers stood on blood-soaked floors for 10 to 12 hours at a time, suffering through repugnant smells during the summer in stifling heat. Nevertheless, there were always jobs to be had there, and by 1920, the stockyards employed over 40,000 people. Not only men, but women and children worked there. Many employees lived in nearby tenements, part of an area that would soon be known as Back of the Yards. On the rare occasions they got some leisure time, they went to White Sox games. That is a local fan base, a working class fan base, uh, a fan base that is Southern Eastern European, Irish American. You know, you look to the writing of James T. Farrell, who's, uh, you know, grew up in like the Washington Park neighborhood, Irish American. And he writes about standing in line, you know, for bleacher seats. And, you know, you really get a sense that that was people from the neighborhood. Farrell, the famed author of the Studs Lonigan trilogy, wrote, The neighborhoods of Chicago in which I grew up possessed something of the character of a small town. They were little worlds of their own. Maybe no other city in the country is as staunchly regional as Chicago. It's been long known as a city of neighborhoods. Granted, it's one of many cities in the United States to hold that moniker, but still. Type the word neighborhoods into Google. First thing that comes up is about Chicago. Go ahead and try it. I'll still be droning on when you get back. Take note that that may not work if you're not in Chicago. But it's a point anyway. Charles Comiskey may have understood better than any owner in baseball how to get those people from the neighborhood, his people, to come out to the games. His park was located just over a mile away from the Union Stockyards, and from the start, he attracted those working-class fans. He had the advantage that many of them were Irish. The Irish were usually considered the most assimilated immigrant group, primarily because they spoke English. 
Many of those Southside residents were already fans of Comiskey from his father's days as an alderman, but to sweeten the deal, a lot of the early White Sox heroes descended from their homeland. There was Billy Sullivan and Jimmy Callahan, and of course, the great Ed Walsh. While the Southsiders embraced their history, the Northside grew up around the Cubs' new ballpark. There was some industry in the area, including a coal yard right next to the park, but overall, the neighborhood was vastly underdeveloped compared to the South Side. You know, you look at the neighborhood, like um, fans lining up to get tickets for World Series games and so forth, and you don't see a lot around. You know, you see um, grain silos, you see railroad tracks. Just to the north of Lakeview was Uptown, which was fast becoming the premier entertainment district in the city. The name Uptown was meant to evoke images of New York's glitzier district, and the main drag through Chicago's Uptown was renamed Broadway for the same reason. The area featured fancy theaters, glamorous department stores, and it was the hub of Chicago's burgeoning film industry, still making just silent pictures at the time. To the south of Lakeview, downtown was starting to expand to include the area north of the river. Once the bridge was completed, Michigan Avenue turned into a high-end shopping district. The area immediately around the Cubs' new park was still mostly residential, but the north side as a whole was proving unmistakably that it was the more upscale section of the city. And over the coming years, that is the clientele that the Cubs attracted more and more. But even though the seeds of this geographical and class rivalry were being planted in the 1910s, according to Peter Alter, in some ways, it's always been a little more perception than reality. Circa 2003, 2004, there was, I believe, a master's student at the University of Chicago who did kind of an exit study of fans from both the White Sox and the Cubs. And what this woman found was that, except for their allegiances, that the fans were nearly identical. So uh, kind of what you would expect, uh, Wrigley fans, you know, of course, north side, but really north and northwest suburbs. And Sox fans, south and southwest suburbs, predominantly white, predominantly the same age, predominantly the same socioeconomic class. And so, you know, when it comes to the fan bases, they're very similar in terms of those demographic aspects. Now, their approaches to their favorite teams can be much different. Today, Chicago is typically viewed as a Cubs town that the White Sox also happen to play in. As we've already seen, that hasn't always been the case. Throughout the 20th century, the two sides went back and forth, battling for popularity. But while the Cubs were on the west side, they were undeniably second-class citizens. Their move north started to change that, but there was another key change around the same time that impacted the two fan bases. During World War I, travel restrictions from Europe meant that there was a shortage of people emigrating to the U.S., and consequently, a severe shortage of immigrant workers in Chicago. So for the first time, these jobs started getting filled by African Americans. In 1910, Chicago's black population was just 30,000. By 1930, that number was nearly 200,000. They came from the South to start earning fair wages for their labor. Well, as fair as any wages were at the time. For the most part, this influx of black residents settled on the South Side. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, Major League Baseball put an entirely white product on the field, and as a result, the crowds were mostly white as well. On the south side of Chicago, black baseball was extremely popular. The American Giants played at the old 39th Street grounds that the White Sox had inhabited before 1910. The Sox's new stadium, Comiskey Park, also was legendary in the Negro Leagues. 
It was the site of the East-West All-Star Game every year from 1933 to 1955. This was the preeminent annual event in black baseball, and their crowds often dwarfed the white All-Star Games. As the Major League game integrated in the second half of the century, the White Sox never really seemed to take great advantage of this huge potential fan base they could have brought in. I always wondered why, so I asked Richard Lindbergh. When Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1946, black baseball fans would go to Wrigley Field to see Jackie Robinson when the Dodgers played. The novelty of an African-American like Jackie Robinson jacked up Cub attendance. But Larry Doby, who was the first black in the American League who came in in 1947, played for Cleveland, did not attract the same level of interest as Jackie. Jackie was more of a personality compared to Larry Doby. Plus, Larry Doby was the second guy, you know. So Larry Doby's appearance in Comiskey Park did not bring out large crowds. The White Sox did, for a time, capture the city's attention again. They outdrew the Cubs consistently in the 50s and 60s, but the Cubs took over again in the 80s and have controlled fan interest ever since. As the years rolled by, Cubs and White Sox fans began to take on certain stereotypes, which came largely from the areas that the stadiums were located in. Peter Alter credits Bill Veck Jr., who worked for the Cubs and later owned the Sox, for popularizing some of the cliches. He has a line somewhere, a White Sox fan will be like a plumber or an electrician, and every morning he'll he'll wake up and he's a White Sox. Like the, his first thought is about his beloved Southside Nine. Whereas a Cubs fan, he'll be, you know, a banker, an accountant, and he'll go out for, you know, a round of 18 holes before he goes to uh, Wrigley, and uh, that will be just one of his, you know, amusements during the day. And so right there you get that, like, you know, blue-collar, white-collar split, north side, south side. Much of that was years away, though, when the Cubs moved to Wiegman Park on Clark and Addison in the spring of 1916. In 1917, the Reds beat the Indians in six games in the battle for Ohio, and the Cardinals beat the Browns in seven games for the St. Louis title. For 15 years, those teams, as well as those in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York, had played intermittent city series. After 1917, no one ever played another outside of Chicago. There were five cities that housed more than one major league team, plus Ohio, but the rivalries weren't strong enough to sustain yearly competition. Well, except in New York, where they seemed to play each other every year in the World Series, but that's a different story. In Chicago, the animosity just kept growing and growing. Since 1900, Chicago had been split between two fan bases. Now it wasn't just Cubs fans versus White Sox fans. It was North Side versus South Side, a rivalry that's still going strong today. Next week, I continue my crazy gambit of not talking about the City Series on this City Series podcast. That's because the series is on hiatus, while one team, then the other, makes the World Series. We'll take a look inside the White Sox fix of the 1919 series. But first, did the Cubs beat them to it? That's coming up next time on Chicago's Civil War. Be there. And head over to terrybonadonna.com city series for more information on each episode or to catch up on anything you've missed. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>